go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin today by reading verses 1 through 5. If you're using a few Bible there, it's page 1. Very appropriate. Genesis chapter 1. This is the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. May God give us ears to hear his word. One summer, many years ago, I had a roommate who was a pathological liar. I was working at this summer camp during college, and there were four of us living in this little cabin in the woods. And this guy would tell the most outrageous, outlandish stories imaginable. Uh, For some reason, all of his fish stories, they seemed to have to do with his family and the great exploits that they had committed. Uh, But he told me, and I remember this one, that his father had been a professional wrestler who had one time defeated Hulk Hogan. His uncle had been a secret agent in the CIA, and he had infiltrated the Kremlin, but then got captured and sent to Siberia. His grandfather had discovered or invented some sort of indestructible glass that literally could not be broken or shattered at all. Uh, It's the sort of stuff that you would really expect to hear in like a mental hospital from people that hadn't been taking their psychotic medications. Um, But he told these stories virtually every single day, um, and, and he seemed to be otherwise a fine, decent person. I just always told these crazy stories. Now, what I discovered is that this guy's continual fish stories, they created something of a culture in our dorm. Uh, At first, we confronted him and tried to sort of call him to his senses. There's no way that happened. That's ludicrous. But before long, we got too tired of that. And what we started doing is really just playing pretend. Whenever we heard about his uncle, who was, let's say, the other shooter on the grassy knoll, who took out JFK because he was working for the Russians, uh, we just kind of wink and smirk and nod and just carry on as if life was normal. We grew to tolerate his delusions, even when we knew deep down that they were ridiculous. Now, it's interesting that many people have a similar experience when it comes to discussions regarding the age of the universe. Some of us, when we hear that Christians think that the universe is young, maybe 10 to 6,000 years old, we kind of wink and nod and smirk and think, hmm, there those Christians go again, entertaining fairy tales. Others of us have the opposite experience. When we hear that the universe, they think, is, say, 15 billion years old and that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, again, we sort of wink and smirk and maybe circle the right answer on the biology test. But deep down, we think there's no way possible the Earth is that old. So how old is the universe? How can we even know? Does the Bible speak to this issue? Why would I even care? Lord willing, these will be the questions we're going to be discussing both in this sermon and in the sermon two weeks from now. Now, just to set the context here, a couple of weeks ago we began this new series in the book of Genesis. And like we saw, Genesis is written by Moses, the man of God, to the Jews who had just come out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And it's written to these Jews to help them make sense of their world. Who are we? Why are we here? Why are we heading to the promised land? Now, last week we looked at Genesis 1, which exalts God as our creator. 
And as we saw, God created this universe by the power of his word in six days, and he made it good. That was all last week. But last week's sermon, it raises an obvious question. Are these days that Genesis 1 is talking about, are they literal 24-hour days? For instance, in verse 5, it says there was evening and there was morning the first day. Is that a day like our 24-hour days? Or might that be poetic language, figurative language for a gigantic period of time, maybe, say, five billion years? That's what we're going to be thinking about today and, Lord willing, in the next sermon. Now, I do want to say up front that this sermon is primarily directed to Christians, not not non-Christians. And I want to stress that for a very important reason. If you're not a Christian, and if you don't share some of the presuppositions that we bring to the Bible, all of this will probably seem like a bunch of fairy tales and nonsense. Uh, You know, if you don't think the Bible is the living word of God, but if you think it's just a collection of old old myths, again, you will think we're debating how many leprechauns are at at the end of the rainbow. Now, it's important for me to say this because all true Christians, we share certain assumptions and presuppositions about the Bible. For instance, we believe that the Bible is the word of God, that there is a God who has spoken and he has spoken in the Bible. And if we want to engage with that God, we listen to the Bible. That's something that we assume. Another thing that we assume is that the Bible, because it's the word of God, is authoritative. It's authoritative. What that means is that when the Bible clearly teaches something, we believe it regardless of what other men may say. We've got all these theories, all these ideas, all these competing claims out there. If the Bible clearly says something, we say, let God be true, though every man a liar. We say that because we believe the Bible is the word of God. So if you believe these sorts of presuppositions, if you believe that there is a God and the Bible is the word of God and that the Bible is authoritative, I'm talking to you this morning. I'm going to argue that you, my Christian brother, my Christian sister, should not accept that the universe is billions of years old. But if you happen to be here today and you are not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we are delighted you're here. Sincerely, thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. And I hope that today's sermon will make sense and at least explain to you why many of us Christians do not accept that the universe is billions of years old. But if you are not a Christian, I'd really encourage you to deal with a far more important question. Instead of diving into stardust and the fossil record and dinosaur bones, instead explore a more fundamental question. Is the Bible the Word of God? Begin there. Is the Bible the Word of God, or is it just an ancient book of mythology? For if the Bible is the Word of God, you must believe in and trust in everything that it says, whether you like it or not. But if it's not the Word of God, why even bother being here? So begin with that fundamental question, is the Bible the Word of God? Now, in addressing this topic today, I'd like to proceed in two parts. First, we're going to talk about why this is an important issue. I know that some of you have come to me kind of surprised that we'd even be talking about such things. I mean, why get unnecessarily divisive? Why, you you know, take a stand on this issue when you don't take stands on other issues? That, Lord willing, will be the first part of our sermon this morning. Then, Lord willing, the second part, we're going to talk about what does the Bible say? If we assume the Bible is the inspired word of God, what does it say on this topic? That, again, will be Lord willing, part two. Then if you come back two Sundays from now, we're going to talk about the science. Remember, next week we're going to have a missionary here, so we kind of got to jump over that one. But the week after that, we're going to talk about how do we make sense of all this scientific evidence, which seems to suggest that the universe is billions of years old. Come back in two weeks, and Lord willing, we'll talk about that. Well, let's get to this and talk first about why is this even important? I mean, who really cares how old the universe was or is? I mean, none of us were there. Uh, You know, it's not like we can change anything. 
So why is this even worth talking about? Well, in order for any of this to make sense, you've got to understand that there are basically two views on the age of the universe. Basically two views held by Christians. Now, again, there's different nuance, different shading, there's different variations, but basically two views. One, the universe is very, very, very old. Or two, the universe is relatively young. Basically just two views with lots of variations in there. Now, those who say the universe is very, very old, they do not say this on the careful reading of the Bible. And again, they'll even admit this. Uh, they, they come at this first with scientific assumptions. The rocks, the fossil records, so forth, that demonstrates how old the universe is. Uh, therefore, we reinterpret the Bible accordingly. Others approach the question differently, thinking, what does the Bible have to say? Looking carefully at what it seems to be telling us about the age of the universe. And then we reinterpret the scientific theories in light of the Bible. So in one sense, it's a very different starting point. You following me? Bring up the points on that chart, if you would. Those who say the universe is very, very, very old, they mean like really old. Uh, according to the latest uh, things I checked, the universe is 15 billion years old. Okay? Not, not like, we're not debating here a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand years. 15 billion years old, and the Earth is about four and a half billion years old. Again, this assumes the reliability of scientific theories, say the Big Bang, that sort of thing. And it does require a radical reinterpretation of the Bible. That can be said about all old Earth views, old universe views. Be it the gap theory, be it progressive creationism, being the day-age day theory, whatever. They, they all can be fit into that category, though I acknowledge there are different nuances to them. The young universe view, on the other hand, it looks at the universe as basically six to 10,000 years old. Okay, so dramatic difference here. Additionally, what it assumes is that scientific theories are fallible or open to modification. And again, Lord willing, we'll talk about that more next week. It's not that they're junk that we've got to ignore, but is there a way to interpret them differently that does not contradict the Bible? And then this other view, young earth, young universe view, it takes the Bible at face value. Again, it assumes that God is speaking to us in his word, and it assumes that God is more reliable and trustworthy than we are. I mean, again, you think about it, none of us were there. So maybe we should trust somebody who was there when he tells us when the universe was created. If you can kind of keep those two views in mind, it will make sense in this entire discussion. Now, let me show you my hand here. I really believe that the approach whereby the Bible is radically interpreted to fit in billions of years is frankly dangerous. It is dangerous. It is dead wrong. It makes human theories more authoritative than the Bible. It gives man the ability to twist scripture to sort of conform to cultural consensus. And really, it puts our powers of observation on the same level as the living word of God. I'll make a really strong statement here, which I was actually kind of glad none of my pastor friends showed up this morning who believe in these things. But listen to what I think on this. If you believe, if you can make the Bible say that the universe is billions of years old, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Okay, again, I've got pastor friends who would probably kick me for saying that, but I think it's true. If you can make the Bible say that the universe is billions of years old, you can make the Bible say anything you want, which is very dangerous. I mean, think about our culture. And all the culture is kicking against scripture, kicking against Christian tradition. If you get into this sort of trajectory where you reinterpret the Bible based on cultural consensus, I mean, do you really even have Christianity anymore? Let me give you three reasons now why I think this is important. Three reasons why I think this is worth taking a stand on. First, what you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the significance of the human race. 
What you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the significance of the human race. Now, when you read the Bible, what you discover is that humans are really the pinnacle of God's creation. Distinct from everything else that God has made, men and women are created in the image of God, and we're really to be sort of like kings and queens in God's creation. Describing this event, you might even look at Genesis 126 there. It says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. You think about it, God did not create trees in his image. He did not create dinosaurs in his image. He did not create hippopotamuses in his image, or cats, or dogs, or fish, whatever you like. Only humans are created in God's image, and we are given dominion over this creation. It's as if this creation exists to serve us, and we are to rule this creation for the glory of God. I, however, think all of that changes if you start fitting billions of years in here. And here's why. Take a look at this chart, if you would. On this timeline here, you've got the young universe view. And as you can see here, the history of the universe corresponds virtually perfectly with the history of the human race. You know, with the exception of the first five days when God was making, you know, plants and fish and that sort of thing, basically the history of the universe runs concurrent with the history of the human race. And that makes sense if the universe exists primarily as a backdrop for God's work of redemption. Look at this second timeline, though. This second timeline is what you have with the very, very old universe. You've got the history of the universe, which is, again, 15 billion years, and then you've got this little tiny blip at the end, which is the human race. And actually, that's bigger than it would be in reality. I just had to put something on there so that you could see it. I think that changes the way that you look at the universe and at the significance of the human race. I mean, what is the purpose of these billions and billions and billions of years? What's more, perhaps Jesus won't come again for billions and billions and billions of years. Do you see the connection here between the age of the universe and the significance of the human race? Let me give you another reason why I think this is important. What you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the character of God. What you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the character of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that not only is God our creator, but he is our sustainer. He's continually, actively involved in creation. Every day, he is the one sending rain and sunshine, causing our hearts to beat, causing our lungs to pump. Not only is he our creator, but in him we live and move and have our being, as Paul says in Acts 17. Colossians 1.15 says this is even Jesus' ministry during this age. Listen to Colossians 1.15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. But listen to verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, the Bible looks at Jesus not only as the one who created the universe billions of years ago, but as actively holding it together, keeping the planets in their courses, keeping the sun burning, actively engaged with creation. And yet I do think that some of that changes if you look at the universe as billions and billions of years old. If this entire vision of the billions of years, it assumes a much more meandering, aimless, sort of not really knowing where it's going view of the universe. 
Instead of God continually sustaining creation, doing miracles, doing things that man, man cannot comprehend, the universe becomes this kind of junk drawer of accidents. And the reason why there's something rather than nothing is because stardust accidentally crashed together. What's more, I think this view of the universe is billions of years old, it does damage to what Romans 1 says is one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God. You go back to Romans 1, what's one of the strongest arguments for the existence of a glorious, perfect, wise God that we need to be reconciled to? It's creation. Remember Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You see what Paul's saying? You should be able to look at a sunset, at a mountain range, at the smile of your child, and realize there is a great, glorious, beautiful God. I need to know that God. I need to be reconciled to that God. Creation is shouting that every day. And yet I do think the billions of years idea minimizes that. Because again, instead of being the obvious handiwork of God, the universe is more like a junk drawer of accidents. Things just fell into place. And, and through that, yes, maybe God worked to cause things to evolve and, and bring about what we have, but it's certainly not the intelligent design that we would expect. And you think about it, if the created universe is the strongest evidence for the existence of God that we have, wouldn't we expect Satan to attack that? Wouldn't we expect Satan to do everything that he can to sow confusion, to sow doubt, to lead people astray on that point? I think we would. Let me give you one last reason why I think this is worth talking about. What you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the authority of the Bible. What you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the authority of the Bible. Now, like I hinted at earlier, at the end of the day, this entire discussion really is not a matter of science, but a matter of authority. Which is the authority? The constantly evolving theories of mankind or the clear statements of the Word of God? Which is more reliable, uh, secular scientists, some of whom don't even believe there is a God, or what God's word seems to clearly say? Now, the Bible itself regularly claims to be infinitely more authoritative than the wisest men on the planet. For example, in Psalm 119.97, probably King David says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I keep your precepts. Did you see the way in which he compares himself with the wise, with teachers, with the aged? And he's saying that through your word, I've got more authority than they do, not because I'm so great, but because your word is so authoritative. You see, the Bible views itself as the ultimate evidence, the ultimate decision maker, the ultimate proof. Whatever it says, you trust in it completely, innately, believing that God is far wiser than we ever will be. If the Bible says this is what marriage is, you believe this is what marriage is, even if it's contrary to cultural consensus. If the Bible says this is right and this is wrong, you believe that, even if it's contrary to what people think these days. You walk by faith, not by sight, believing in the, the authority of the Bible. That's at least the way the Bible's supposed to function in the Christian life. And yet again, if you try to insert billions of years into Scripture, you're reinterpreting the Bible based on the fallible theories of humans. You're forced to say, yes, I know that's what the Bible seems to teach, and it really kind of looks that way, but based on biology, geology, whatever, we know better, so it can't actually say that. 
And I could give you quotes from honest pastors who say that very same, very same thing. Yes, it looks like it says that. And were it not for biology, geology, so forth, we would believe that. But we can't believe that because of what these human theories say. That, I think, is a fundamentally dangerous way to read the Bible. To illustrate this, you might contrast what we're talking about here with the debates that Christians have over end times matters. Uh, you know that many Christians debate and sometimes furiously over end time stuff. Will Jesus come before, during, after the millennium? Will the rapture be before, during, after the tribulation? That sort of thing. How is that different than this discussion? Well, it's different because in the end times debates, what do Christians do? They point to scripture. They say, you know, I believe based on Daniel 7 that it'll be this way. Somebody else says, I think based on 1 Thessalonians 4, it'll be this way. Somebody else says, I think on the basis of uh, Ezekiel 38, it'll be this way. But what are they doing? They're united in believing in the authority of the Bible. Contrast that with the age of the universe discussion. A Christian will say, based on Genesis 1, it really seems like these are literal days. The other person will come back and say, well, actually, based on geology... Biology, whatever, that can't be the case. Do you see it's a fundamentally different argument at root? It really is a difference of authority. So these are three reasons why I think it's worthwhile and actually quite important to take a stand on this. Now, let me clarify. This is what I believe and this is what we teach here, but it's not a membership requirement. You know, if, if at the end of the day I don't persuade you, you can still be a very happy functioning member of this congregation. You just need to realize that this is what we're going to teach so again, what you believe about the age of the universe, it's directly tied to your view of the significance of the human race. What you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the character of God. And what you believe about the age of the universe is directly tied to your view of the authority of the Bible. Therefore, I think it's worth taking a stand on. Now, if you want to read more on this, the book I'd recommend is called The Lie Evolution by Ken Ham. This is actually one of the first Christian books I read a long time ago. And I'd encourage you all to read it. Uh, one of the interesting things that it shows is the way in which so much of the cultural decay that we're experiencing now did not just come out of nowhere. You trace it back to evolutionary theory being taught in public schools beginning in the 30s. And, and you sow those seeds long enough and people will start thinking that they're actually just animals. And because we're animals, we can live like animals. Uh, but if you want a lot more on the significance of this issue, check out this book. It is in our church library, by the way. Let's talk about a second question here. What does the Bible say? Obviously, what the Bible says on this is what's most important. So what does the Bible say? And I want to give you three reasons now why the Bible clearly teaches that the universe cannot be billions of years old. Three reasons. Again, these are not the only ones, but three reasons why the universe cannot be billions of years old. First, Genesis 1 clearly teaches that the days of the creation were week were literal 24-hour days. And I hope to show you this in a minute. Genesis 1 clearly teaches that the days of the creation week were literal 24-hour days. Now, if we read Genesis 1 using the same Bible reading principles that we would use in discovering something like the Trinity or the virgin birth or Jesus' resurrection, we would never come to the conclusion that the universe is billions of years old. Again, look at Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, as you read this chapter, the different days all follow that general pattern. God states what he's made. God states the day. The day has a number. And then he says there was evening, and there was morning, the blank day. 
maybe second, maybe third, so forth. But that's the pattern followed throughout this uh, chapter. Now, here are some things to consider regarding the word day. It is true that the word day can mean a long period of time. You may have heard of the idea of the day of the Lord. That's not a single 24-hour day, but it's a period of time. So the word can be used that way. However, it can also refer to a literal 24-hour period of time. Like today is Monday, today is Tuesday. So how do we know which it is? Let me give you a few pointers. Everywhere in the Bible, whenever the the word day is combined with a number, it always and invariably means an ordinary day. And feel free to check any of these out, uh, to double-check my work, which I encourage you all to do all the time. But every single time in the Bible, whenever the word day is combined with a number, first day, second day, so forth, it always and invariably means an ordinary day. What do we have here in Genesis 1? We've got at least six examples of that. Additionally, everywhere in the Bible, whenever day is modified by either of the terms evening or morning, it refers to an ordinary day. You want to know what kind of day Moses is talking about? It's a day with an evening and a morning. And one of those alone would point to a 24-hour day, evening. But we got both evening and morning for each day. And then lastly, these terms evening and morning, they appear 38 times in the Bible. And every single time they refer to literal evenings and mornings. I know that in our culture we can talk about the evening of somebody's life or something like that. Uh, The Bible just does not speak that way when it talks about evening and morning. These are literal evenings and mornings. So look at this if you would. One of those would point us to a literal day. We've got all of these combined in Genesis 1 for each of the days. And it's almost as if God is saying, could I be any clearer? It's a day with a number. It's a day with an evening and a morning. And these terms, evening and morning, only and always ever refer to literal evenings and mornings. So for me, I think Genesis 1 is pretty clear. And if you really want some good commentary on this, this is going to sound odd, but read commentaries by non-Christians on Genesis 1. There are such things as commentators uh, that, that are not Christians. They just study the Bible like you might study Shakespeare or something like that. And some of these folks are really good with Hebrew. And they'll tell you, looking carefully at the Hebrew, this is what it says. Even though I don't believe it, I don't even believe there is a God, but taking the Hebrew carefully, this is what it says. To give you an example of this, some of you may have heard of a guy named James Barr. Now, I know most of you have not studied Hebrew, so you probably don't know who James Barr is. But this guy is like the Captain America of Hebrew studies. I mean, unbelievable. Not a Christian. I don't think, sadly, we'll see him in heaven. But he knew Hebrew inside and out. And listen to what he says regarding Genesis 1. He says, so far as I know, there is no Hebrew, professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the ideas that creation took place in a series of six days, which are the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. To me, that speaks pretty powerfully, and I think it confirms what we're seeing here from Genesis 1, that God did intend to communicate to us that these are actual days. The only difference is we believe this actually happened because God's word is true. Now, I keep saying that if we simply read the Bible with the same method of Bible reading that we use to, say, come to the conclusion of the virgin birth or the miracles or whatnot, we'd never think that Genesis 1 was figurative. I actually think, and I fear, that those who begin reinterpreting Genesis in light of secular theories, they've kind of opened the door that can lead to the eventual denial of other miracles. Why is that? Well, you think about it. The very same scientists that say the earth is billions of years old, they say virgin births can't happen. Resurrections can't happen. Miracles can't happen. Why would we go with them over here but not go with them over here? 
And I'm afraid that that does sometimes happen, that sooner or later people start denying things like the virgin birth. I think we need to agree with Martin Luther. In his day, it's interesting, and I think I might talk about this next time. There have been debates about the age of the earth for a long time, but they've not always gone in the same direction. During the Reformation, there was a debate over, was it one day and not six? And again, this came from secular scientific theory, that the entire universe was not created in six days, but in one day. That was the idea, and there were Christians that were trying to reinterpret the Bible in light of that. But listen to what Luther says on this point. He says, the days of creation were ordinary days in length. We must understand that these were actual days. When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days, and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. Now get this next sentence. This is so typical of Luther. But... If you cannot understand how this could be done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. I think that's some wise counsel. Let me give you a second reason why the Bible teaches the earth is not billions of years old. The entire Bible teaches that humanity's seven-day work week is rooted in and is a copy of God's seven-day creation week. The entire Bible teaches that humanity's seven-day work week is rooted in and is a copy of God's seven-day creation week. Now, have you ever wondered where our seven-day week comes from? You know, this does not come from, say, the movement of planets, or it does not come from the sun going around, or the earth going around the sun. It doesn't come from the moon going around the earth. I mean, where does it come from? You go anywhere in the world today, and it's Sunday. Now, I know that there are time changes. That's not not what I'm getting into. But if you took a boat to Brazil, it's Sunday. You know, if you got a plane and flew to Great Britain, it's Sunday. Where in the world did that whole system come from? Well, this entire system, it comes from one place, from the Bible and the idea that God created the universe and all that is in it in six days. Look up here at Exodus 20, verse 8. This is the fourth commandment. In Exodus 28, God says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And here's the reason. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the Sabbath, the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now a few things that draw your attention to here. If you look at verse 8, he's clearly talking about a literal 24-hour day. You take a day off. Now, in high school, I wish that day off was millions of years long, uh, but that's just not what the Bible teaches. You take a day off, and why do you take a day off? It's because I took a day off. I worked for six days, and then I took a day off. You likewise work for six days and take a day off. Now, I admit that some people try to say this is just an analogy. Uh, you know, I took six periods of time off and then took a seventh period of time off. You take six days off and take, or pardon me, seven days off and take one day. Or you, you know what I'm trying to say. It's just sort of an analogy. The problem there is there's nothing in this passage or nothing in the rest of the Bible to suggest that's what's going on. In part because he uses day for both what I did and what you're supposed to do. And when you do that, unless there's some really clear reason to indicate that you've changed what you're talking about, you assume the day here is the same as the day there. You know, if I say, go give your brother five bucks just like I gave you five bucks, you're not going to think by five bucks I mean five chickens or something like that. Since there's nothing in the context to indicate a change what I'm talking about, you're going to assume that I'm still talking about $5. You follow that? Ken Ham summarizes this idea well, what I'm trying to say. He says, some say that Exodus 2011 
It was only an analogy in the sense that man is to work and rest, not that it was to mean six literal ordinary days followed by one literal ordinary day. However, Bible scholars have shown that this commandment does not use analogy or archetypal thinking, but that its emphasis is stated in terms of the imitation of God or a divine precedent that is to be followed. In other words, it was to be six literal days of work followed by one literal day of rest, just as God worked for six literal days and rested for one. hope you follow that. But that's the second reason why I think this is clear in Scripture. Our entire work week is patterned on God's creation week. But again, all of that is destroyed if God created the universe in billions and billions of years. And what's more, I won't pursue this very far now, secular theory doesn't even line up with the order that we've got in Genesis 1. You know, in Genesis 1, you got, you know, the globe and then the separation of the waters and then, you know, the plants. Secular theory doesn't even come close to lining up with that. It's not like it just spreads it out. Everything's rearranged and, and, and different. So don't just think if we just spread out the time, that fixes everything. Let me give you a third and final reason why I think the Bible teaches the universe is young and not billions of years old. If the universe is billions of years old, there were billions of years of death and bloodshed before Adam's fall, an idea that does great harm to the gospel. If the universe is billions of years old, there were billions of years of death and bloodshed before Adam's fall, an idea which does great harm to the gospel. Now, in order to make sense of this, you've got to understand a little bit of theology and what's being taught in other places in the Bible. But the Bible is very clear that when God finished his creation, everything was good the way that it was supposed to be, not yet tainted by sin. If you look at Genesis 131, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, in that good, perfect creation, there were no thorns or thistles, no pain or suffering, no weeping, no cancer. It was good. The lion lay down with the lamb. Adam and Eve got along in perfect harmony. Everything was the way that it was supposed to be. And yet, you know the rest of the story, Adam and Eve sinned, and with their sin, death and corruption entered the universe. And it's as if sin, it not only made Adam and Eve guilty, it inserted this poison into creation. Roses started to grow thorns, snakes became poisonous, people began to atrophy and die, lions started eating lambs, Adam and Eve started having trouble in their marriage. Eventually, everybody would grow old and die, all due to the corruption introduced into our world through Adam and Eve's sin. It's like we read in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Now, perhaps you're thinking, that just talks about humans being sinful. Adam's sin didn't corrupt all of creation, that's just humans, and that's why we need a Savior. The rest of the creation is fine. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches, again, that Adam's sin, it did it. It, it introduced corruption and decay into our world. This is why dogs die. This is why cats eat birds. This is why, if you look at dinosaur fossils, there are dinosaurs with cancer. This is why there's cancer at all. It's like Romans 8.21 says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So you see where I'm going? Creation created by God, good, holy, perfect. No sin, no suffering, no disease, no death. Adam's sin plunges humanity and all of the created cosmos into corruption. Here's one more relevant point. The Bible is clear that Jesus is undoing the big mess that Adam made. 
Jesus is undoing the big mess that Adam made. Jesus died to take our sins away and to forgive us. But more than that, eventually he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Bennett read about this earlier, but in that new creation, it will be a restoration back to the way things were supposed to be in the beginning. No more weeping, no more sorrow, no more thorns, no more thistles, no more cancer, no more death in the new creation because of what Jesus did on the cross. You follow me? Now, here's what you need to realize. Everybody who believes that the universe is billions of years old, regardless of their view, has to insert tons of death and bloodshed before Adam and Eve sinned. This is true of all the different views. Again, I, I know that there are different views out there, and sometimes people criticize me. You, you describe properly the gap theory, but you didn't talk about progressive creationism. This is true for all those views that take billions of years. They have to insert a ton of death, bloodshed, suffering before Adam and Eve even came on the scene for, this, for the scenario to make sense. And I'll admit that to my, my brothers and sisters who hold the old earth, old universe view, they recognize this is a problem, but I've never heard a good solution to it. They'll say, yeah, I can see that, but that, that, that's about the end of it. They can't come back and say, well, yes, because of this passage in Ezekiel or because of this truth about the blood of Jesus. There's just really nothing. And you're left wondering, thinking, you know, do you really get what I'm saying here? This is a huge problem, but it's not a problem if the universe is relatively young. Now, I claim that this whole idea does damage to the gospel. Now, why is that? And that's obviously a serious claim. Well, the reason for that is because in God's program, what is forgiveness connected to? It's connected to the shedding of blood. That's what Hebrews 9.22 says. Under the law, everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Adam has sinned. He's corrupted creation. He's made us guilty. Blood must be shed for that sin to be forgiven. If you trace that theme forward, that takes us straight to the cross of Jesus and why he's laying down his life. Because through the blood of his cross, he's making peace. And yet again, if you believe in a billions of years old universe, you do damage to that. Because again, shedding of blood, it existed forever before Adam and Eve came on the scene. You know, dinosaurs eating one another and lambs getting eaten by lions. That, that was going on for a long period of time before Adam got here. Which again, in my mind, does damage to a motif that God is trying to create here. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And honestly, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is ultimately why we're concerned about this issue. Sin brought death, but Jesus has come to eliminate sin, to forgive us of our sins, to destroy death, and to give us eternal life. But again, that framework is damaged if the universe is billions of years old. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, what you most need to hear is not anything about the age of the earth, about fossils, or about stardust. You need to hear the truth about Jesus, who he is, and why he came to earth. The Bible tells us that you were made to know God, and that is such a precious truth. Even if you don't buy all that I'm saying this morning, just maybe go home and ponder that. I was made to know God. I was created to have a relationship with the Creator. Think on that today. I think this is manifest in the way in which we are different than animals. We are moral creatures. We know right from wrong, and we often do what is wrong. And that leads us to the next truth, that we are sinners. We know how we should live, but we often don't live that way. We break God's laws continually. And usually, if we don't get caught, it doesn't bother us very much. Basically, we try to live as if there is no creator, when deep down we know he's a good, righteous, loving God who will be reconciled to us. Now, because God is good, he will punish us for our sins. He will pour out his wrath on us, which is exactly what we deserve. 
somewhat in this life, but far, far worse in the life to come. And unless we are forgiven, unless we have a Savior, unless we are reconciled to God, our Creator, we will spend eternity in that real place called hell. And yet under these very circumstances, God in His great love, God did something to heal, to restore, to reconcile sinners to Himself. He provided a Savior, a Savior for all people who is Jesus. God the Father sent God the Son down to earth. God the Son was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary and given the name Jesus. He's fully God, fully human in one person. He grows up and lives the perfect life of obedience we should have lived. And then if you know the rest of the story, you know he died a horrible death in his mid-30s. He's arrested, he's nailed to the cross, and on that cross he literally dies. And why is he dying? He's dying because, again, of what I talked about just a moment ago. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. On that cross, Jesus bore the wrath we deserved. On that cross, Jesus suffered the punishment in our place we deserve. This is how God can remain holy while forgiving sinners. Jesus absorbed the penalty for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead, victorious, miraculously, demonstrating that he is everything that he claimed to be. One day he's going to return, and one day he's going to create a new creation without any taint of sin or consequence thereof. But until then, he's inviting you, repent, turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, be saved, be forgiven, be made right with God right now. If you're here today, if you're listening today, and you're not a Christian, this is what I want you to think on. Do you have a Savior? Not fossils and rocks. Do you have a Savior? Are your sins forgiven? Are you confident that you are in good terms with your Creator, and that when you die, you'll meet Him, not as a terrifying judge, but as a Heavenly Father? Today, your sins can be forgiven. Today, you can be made right with God, and that comes only through trusting in Jesus. So I implore you, trust him now. If you've never committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus, trust him now. Now is the time to turn. Now is the time to be reconciled to your creator. Now is the time to know the joy, the cleansing of a clean conscience. Of not fearing where I go after I die, but knowing I'll be welcomed into the Father's house. Would you like that? Trust Jesus now. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss any of this further, Need clarification on something that I've said? Would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you? Talk to me after this morning's service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today. So these then are, in my mind at least, three of many, many reasons why I think the Bible teaches the universe is relatively young. Genesis 1 clearly teaches that the days were literal days. The entire Bible teaches that our week is patterned on God's creation week. And lastly, if the universe is billions of years old, there were billions of years of death and bloodshed before the fall, which is a huge problem. Now, these are actually not the only reasons for believing that the Bible teaches this. There's many, many more. If you'd like to explore this further on your own, the book I'd recommend is The Battle for the Beginning, Creation, Evolution, and the Bible by John MacArthur. This book's not so much on the science, though there is some science in it. It's more on what does the Bible clearly say, and as Christians, that's where we need to begin. It's in our library, church library, by the way. So if you'd like to consider this particular facet of the question more, check out The Battle for the Beginning, Creation, Evolution, and the Bible by John MacArthur. Now, maybe at this point you're persuaded. You're thinking, yes, I can see why this is important. Yes, I can see that this is what the Bible seems to teach. But what about all that scientific evidence? 
What about everything I heard in biology class, chemistry class? What about the fossil record in the Grand Canyon? Am I just supposed to forget about all of that and, and, and ignore it, act as if it doesn't exist? Well, there are good ways to approach science as a Bible-believing Christian. There are definitely good ways whereby scientific evidence can be harmonized with a young universe and reinterpreted. But to hear more about that, you'll have to come back next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It's the living word of God. It's the authoritative word of God. It's how you're speaking to us today. Help us, Lord, to treasure your word and help us to trust in it completely. Uh, to, To be terrified of ever putting our thoughts above your word. Please, Lord, give us hearts of faith that delight to do your word, delight to believe your word, whatever it seems to be saying. Do help us to read and interpret it carefully, not jumping to conclusions, not finding things that aren't actually there. But, Lord, after we've done our homework and after we've read it carefully, help us to gladly submit to your word. Lord, continue to bless the series. We do pray for those who might see things differently, who are unpersuaded. Help us, Lord, to treat one another with charity. Uh, to, to love as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet again to take a stand on your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.